1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today the author of the fascinating book, How Our Love of Dogs Creates Social Conflict. Um, This book examines... The unique bond between animals, between dogs and humans, as well as some of the ways that that can um, cause stress um, between different people about dogs uh, on kind of a big picture level and a small picture level. And I'm very pleased to have the author with us today, um, Dr. James K. Begin. Jim, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about your book.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's quite an honor to be like international, having (laughs) my my little book get attention from all over the world. So thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Um, Before we get into the details of the book, would you mind giving us a bit of an introduction of yourself and explaining why you decided to write this?
0: Okay, well, I can give you like a professional background and then a more personal background. So I... Got a PhD in psychology, more specifically social psychology, in 1989 from the University of California at Santa Barbara. And the people there that I worked with, like on my dissertation, basically studied cooperation and competition and variants of game theory, which focus on sort of interdynam- uh, interpersonal dynamics or why sometimes conflict between people is inevitable. So then I got a job at the University of Louisville in Kentucky worked on that for a while, kind of drifted partly because of moving from psychology to sociology and became more interested in this area of sociology called symbolic interactionism, which focuses more on like the social construction of reality. Like it's less, I mean, it's still rooted in like logical positivism and empiricism and things like that, but it recognizes the huge amount of Social interaction, social creation that people have through use it mostly through language in terms of creating a shared reality. So, the way this ties a little bit into this book about dogs, there's a famous quote, which of course I can't remember in detail, but it's called like the Thomas theorem and basically says things are, if, if people think things are real, then they are real to those people. So, if you believe in UFOs and you, and you act in a way, that is consistent with that, then your social world is sort of different than mine, say. So the underlying principle of this book is if you think your dog is a person or more of a person than an animal or however you want to phrase it, then it doesn't really matter, not to get into debates like with cognitive scientists or or veterinarians, it doesn't really matter how smart the dog is, although I think they're smarter than a lot of people think they are. But it doesn't really matter how smart or how emotional the dog is. If I think it's emotional, I'm going to treat it like that. And in a nutshell, that became kind of the root of the conf- or the root of the book, because I got my do- I have a dog. I guess that's not like a huge surprise. Named Lucy, and I got her from an ex girlfriend who I'm on very good terms with. Uh, and she got another dog, which I thought was a huge mistake because now they had two dogs in the same house, and Lucy kind of felt a little put out. So I started saying, well, I'll watch her for a little while or I'll take her, I'll take her out, I'll take her to the bathroom, I'll keep her overnight. And then it just sort of evolved, well, I'll keep her. But I think in talking about the dog with her or with other people who had dogs, I started to realize that a dog and two people, so if you wanna use your basic like married couple, right? Or boyfriend, girlfriend couple. It's it becomes a triad, like a triangle, and I'm one thing that I became fascinated with with this game theory idea was that triangles, and this is a quote that people, not me, have invented, uh, triadic relationships, coalitions of three are inherently unstable because there's also the, uh, there's always a possibility of a subcoalition, a coalition forming. So if you think about three people like A, B, and C, if A likes B and B and A like C, then maybe C wants more attention. So C is nicer to A, which puts B out. So then B tries harder to get A's attention. So then C tries harder. And then, but eventually maybe they both decide that B is too much work and then A and C go together. And then B realizing he's been put out, tries harder with A and C and so on and so on. So there's no like stable solution. So I felt like intu like intuition wise that that was, could be going on with two people and a dog, that two people, if they think the dog is a person or act toward it, like it's a person, then they behave toward it like a person and they can have conflict, not. And, ag- and again, we can debate this later on, whether or not the dog is actually an equal partner in this triad. But if I want to get more attention from the dog and squeeze you out, I might do that. Right. And then you might get jealous or whatever felt put out. So you might try harder to befriend the dog and so on and so on. And then I did argue in the book, although I'm not as on solid of ground with trying to know how dogs think, but there is some, at least some evidence to say that dogs are sensitive to like inequality or inequity and will take efforts to try to get, if they see some other dog being advantaged over them, that they'll try to get more themselves, or They'll abandon a task, like some sort of, you know, play with a toy kind of task. If they think another dog is getting more benefit for doing the same thing. And then anybody who has a dog knows that if you try to sit next to your girlfriend on the couch, the dog will jump in the middle. And again, you could say, well, maybe she just wants attention from both of us or you could say she wants more attention because she's jealous of me with regard to more attention from Andrea. Um, so that, so that's kind of basically in a nutshell that it, it became to me, a, an interesting social problem in that there's three people, one of whom is a dog competing with each other for attention. And, you know, how much is the dog an active partner or just a passive recipient? And then if you think about like the, the way that I one way that I started thinking about this was with a divorce, like if two people have a dog and they get divorced, like unlike a car where if I just said, look, I'll just give you ten thousand dollars and then call it equal, call it even. Right. People might be put off if I said, look, let me just give you five hundred dollars and then I'll just take your dog away. I mean, a lot of people would say, no, or here, let me buy you another dog. Well, no, I don't want another dog. I want this dog because this dog has a shared history with me. So dogs, unlike cars or, you know, or money or whatever, aren't fungible. And the more that you think of your dog as a person, the less fungible it becomes. So the more the stakes can get higher for um, fighting over a dog, like if you're getting a divorce. And then maybe another component of this is years ago, I did research on the psychology of ownership and dogs basically have no I mean, they have certain like you can't be cruel to dogs, but dogs don't have the same kind of rights that humans do. You can own dogs. And a lot of people who are very sympathetic to animal rights issues would say it's bad that people can say that they own dogs. And to be a little maybe controversial or a little counterintuitive, the research that I did on ownership talked about the idea that ownership connects like the psychological construction of ownership or the legal construction of ownership makes a psychological connection between me and whatever it is that I own. And I called it the mere ownership effect. Like just the idea that owning something enhances its value. So even though a lot of people would say it's bad that we can own animals and that only animals have rights, I argued in the book that owning a dog makes it more connected to you, which paradoxically or counterintuitively might make you treat it like more of a person rather than less of a person and feel like it should be treated better, have more rights, et cetera. Even though that would fly kind of a little counterintuitive to how people think about like the downside of owning animals, that you have the right to abuse them if you want to or neglect them if you want to.
1: So... That's fabulous as a starting point, because now we've got a whole bunch of things on the table that I can ask you to tell us more about. Um, But as a first place to start, obviously there's a, as you mentioned, kind of a personal experience and fascination that fed into this. Um, But as the end of your answer just now hinted at, this could be in a way applied to, say, cats, right? Why focus on dogs?
0: Well, okay, from a totally selfish point of view or self-focused point of view, um, I had a dog and not a cat. I'm allergic to cats. At least I used to be more <laughs> allergic. I think i mildly. Why do you have cats now? Have I stepped on your toes? No, um, but that's no? a very oh,
1: okay. legitimate reason to make a decision like that. Um, and it's useful to hear.
0: Okay. So that's one thing. Another thing, which is a little like mean, maybe when I started doing it, because that was one thing that I wanted to you know, as writing a book, like writing an academic book, you kind of anticipate what our reviewer is going to say that are criticisms of you, right? Or criticisms of your work. And so one of the obvious things with why dogs, why not cats? So there is some research, although, and I'll tell you something else in a minute that's going to get me in hot water, maybe for saying this, that people seem to have stronger emotional bonds to dogs and to cats. Like one study that I cited in the book, people, if you ask them how much would they pay a vet to take care of your dog versus cat people were willing to pay more money like if a cat or if a dog got sick than if a cat got sick or injured or something so i use that sort of as an indirect measure of the the strength of the connection so so one reason was it seems like there's a lot larger literature on dogs like human animal human dog interactions than say cats although i can't really say for sure because i didn't look that hard Um, if I wanted to open it up to all animals, that would have been like an infinitely longer book than I had the energy to write. If you start to think about even horses, either other domesticated animals, then it would become like just too cumbersome, I think, to write. Um, but one thing I did say in a sort of predicting the future kind of way, I made a joke about one way to extend this book, like inside the book would be, what if you had, two animals, like two people fighting over one dog? What about two people fighting over two dogs? Like they each own a dog and then the dogs don't agree with each other. The dogs fight. And then extended it to, uh, what if one person owns a dog and one person owns a cat? And I said, this would be like a rom-com, like a romantic comedy plot, right? And then I ended up meeting a woman who has a cat. And so now we're trying to, uh, we live in separate like apartments, but I'll bring the dog over Lucy. And then she has a cat named Holly. And at first, you know, you're terrified. You know, I kept the dog on the leash and you don't want the dog to get too close because um, the cat's claws are like much sharper than a dog's claws or nails. I guess you, whatever you call them. Um, So I didn't want my cat, my dog to get scratched. But on the other hand, you know, it's Holly's house too. Uh, So over time they've gotten a little more, like more well not a little they have gotten more tolerant of each other they're not like rolling together in a field or anything but they're not fighting and like the at first lucy would not like if there was something on the other side of the room that lucy like a toy or food and the cat was in the way she would be like agitated and confused because she couldn't get around holly but now over time she'll just go around her so it's slowly happening i think it would just and uh, my girlfriend named Andrea, Andrea is very sensitive to the idea that people say, well, dogs have more personality than cats or dogs are more emotional. But she'll disagree and say that cats are just as, quote, human as dogs, although maybe they express it differently. Um, so I think that. my fo- I focused on dogs because I know dogs better, but I think I, I've, she said I should write another book about cats and or a book about the interaction of two people and two animals of a different species or one person who owns a cat and a dog now with the problem that i have is that or that we have is that these pets are fully grown i suppose if you bought a puppy and a kitten at the same time they might not have as much of a sort of a natural if they even do natural animosity toward each other
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I will ask you at the end about your next things, Um, but before we get there, let's uh, discuss this book more. In the examples you've given us, there's kind of an obvious implicit idea that conflicts between humans over dogs is quite intense. Why do you think that is?
0: Well, okay, I'll say the first thing, I'll go back to this idea of ownership, because if i changed your phrase and i said the conflict that people have over their children can be quite intense right because children matter to people and so i'm going to say again using that quote about if it's if people think it's real then it is real to those people i'd say that um that the the emotion whatever you want to call it like the freudian like if you want to go old school and say like some sort of cathected energy that you put into the animal or a more sociological, like symbolic interactionist, the conception that you have of an animal as having human-like traits makes it matter more. I mean, I think that would be true of anything like even at a smaller level, anything that you valued, you're going to get mad if somebody mistreats it, like, you know, backs into your car or, or something like that. And I think the importance that dogs have to people would be a natural um consequence or a, uh, create a natural consequence of getting emotional uh, if somehow there's th- the dogs threatened either like literally by potentially being like attacked by another dog or um like more metaphorically or symbolically like laws that restrict dogs and things like that so that'd be one answer i think another answer is that um now this speaks more badly to people than to dogs But if you want to say that dogs are inherent, like just not smart as people, when you see a misbehaving dog, then what you usually have is like a misbehaving person, right? Somebody who's not treating the dog or not respecting either other people or other dogs. So, for example, with me, uh, not too far from where I live, there's a park like a public park, and there are clearly marked signs, you know, your dog must be kept on a leash, you know, dog has to be picked up after and things like that. And when you see people violate that rule, it's annoying. And it's not so much the dog's fault as much as it is the people's fault for being insensitive or rude. And one thing that happened to me a few times is they'll have a dog that's supposed to be on a leash but isn't, And then the dog, kind of like parents who think they have better control over their children than they do. And they'll just say the kid's name over and over again, like, Johnny, stop that. Johnny, stop that. But Johnny's not stopping. They do the same thing with dogs. I remember vividly this woman, this dog is coming toward me and my dog. It's not on a leash. And she says, Don't worry, it's you know, it's friendly. And she's calling the dog's name, wanting the dog to come back to her, but the dog isn't coming back. So clearly, lady, you don't have as much control over your dog as you think you do. And I've had a couple times like where either my dog Lucy will be afraid or the dog, the other dog will kind of come toward my dog in a not necessarily like in a biting way, but in a not friendly way. So now I immediately just like pick up. Pick her up. It's only like 15 pounds. So I just pick her up immediately. But it's annoying to think that people are flagrantly violating this leash law or this pick up your poop law. Um, so that that's that's an issue. Another kind of thing is if I don't own a dog, or even if I do, um, your rudeness, like for example, people who leave their dog out all day, like in a fenced yard and the dog bark constantly, or people have a dog in an apartment building and the dog barks constantly. And then of course, if you really want to up the stakes, I mean, dogs do bite people. Dogs do kill people, not a whole lot, but occasionally. And so those stakes are very high, right? So if your dog is coming toward me or my child, I'm probably going to be pretty angry if the dog looks at all menacing.
1: Yeah. I wonder if I can ask you, um, the idea of kind of control, and of course, you mentioned earlier, your studies into ownership. Um, how and why do you think that ownership is part of this idea of thinking of pets as people?
0: Well, if you want to go back to this, the literature that I sort of cited when I wrote that paper, other people have written about it. There was this guy named Russell Belk, who's you know pretty famous. Um, I guess I'm not actually I'm, I think he's a psychologist, but he also worked like in consumer um, consumer research, like, um, kind of applied business sort of problems. And he came up with this term. Other people have had similar terms, what he called the extended self self extension. And even William James has his famous quote. Of course he said a man given that he wrote it like over a hundred years ago, but a man, a man's self is a sum of all that he is, you know, his, his, his education, his family, his property, et cetera, et cetera, right? So I think that I base my argument on this concept that Russell Belk used, the self-extension, extended self, like incorporate, and there's a couple of uh, psychologists, like a husband-wife couple, like Aaron and Aaron, that talked about inclusion, including others in the self, like in romantic relationships, so in a close relationship, Like you include like a husband or a wife as part of your self identity or your self concept. So I think that that's what, that's the way that I'm conceptualizing it, that you take an object. We, we as human beings have invented this thing called ownership, right? That allows me to say, that's mine. You can't touch it. And then we've like, if you think cavemen probably didn't have laws, but then eventually we had laws and said, not only is this mine, but I can produce documents that the government will recognize that proves it's mine. And this connection to me and my psyche gives me like control of it. And I think one of the consequences of having control of it is you think about it more, you spend more time with it. You connect it to, if you think about memory as like an associative network. So my dog, my car, I start to remember times when I enjoyed having my dog or having my car, So that creates stronger cognitive connections and then even probably emotional connections because now the pleasurable experiences I have with actually the intersection of the dog and the car is when you put a dog in a car and it sticks its head out the window and it's so happy and its ears are flying in the wind, right? So that's a combination of making the dog happy. I'm happy that I'm making my dog happy. I'm using my car to make my dog happy and makes me happy because my dog is happy and All of those memories coalesce inside my brain in sort of my own consciousness, and it all kind of reinforces the idea that this little creature is important to me.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, You talk about in the book that you consider dogs to exist in a boundary or liminal state. Can you tell us what you mean by that and the significance of dogs being in this position?
0: Okay, well, liminal state is not something I invented. It, it's a word that means basically like like a twilight from one state to another, right? So like between sun sun like the sun being out and the sun being totally dark, you could think of like twilight, right? Or more like emotionally, or in terms of human beings, um, people who might be in like one category or not in one category or in another category. Like I suppose you could think of a fiance. You're neither not married. But you're you're not married, but you're also not not married because you have this plan, this promise to get married. So dogs are clearly animals, right? Of course, you could say we are too. Um, They don't seem to have the complexity that we have, right? But at the same time, human beings, you know, and veterinarian type researchers or animal uh, psychologists have looked at how receptive dogs are to be able to communicate with people. Right. So, you know, you can just like make a little sound like a, I don't want to make it cause I don't want, she's like being quiet in the other room. I don't want to tempt fate by having her come out here and bark at me. Um, so you can make a little noise and she'll immediately respond, right. her head will turn back to look at me, etc. So they're incredibly responsive, just like human beings can be incredibly responsive to language but they're, they clearly aren't as smart as people. They don't know how to talk, et cetera, et cetera. And we, we treat them as better than just like, like, like bunny rabbits. You know, you say like, people will say, don't like, we'll post on Facebook and things. Don't, don't leave your animal out in the cold. Cause it's, you know, it's cold out there. Right. But nobody brings wild bunny rabbits into the house in the winter and they somehow survive and squirrels. Right. So we definitely take, the point of view of a dog or a cat sitting in the cold or I guess in the extreme heat uh, and we feel sorry for the dog or the cat and we want to bring it inside. So I'd say that um, the reason they're in this liminal state is because we give them a lot of credit and some of that credit may be deserved and some of it may not be, but clearly they're not people. But in a way you could say they're not animals because wild animals don't want to sit in your lap or sit on the bed, et cetera, et cetera, right? So the common things that people do with their pets, like hand feed them, rub their stomach, even like kiss them, let them lick their faces, things like that, talk, you know, the idea, there's something called, I think it's baby ease, like where people talk to children in that sort of like, like little children, like in that sing song voice, people do it with dogs too, right? And I do it. I don't think of myself as like an overly sentimental guy, but you're, you're going like, oh, let me, like, daddy's coming. Let me get that, right? And uh, my girlfriend does the same thing with her cat or even the dog now. Um, so I think it's, we have, you could maybe say it's our fault. We have this strong desire to like anthropomorphize a lot of things, including dogs. Dogs just seem so, and cats too, but especially dogs, I think because their eyes look like human eyes, because cat's eyes definitely don't look like a human's eye. So there's big brown eyes looking at you, just, you know, you make eye contact and it's different than making, I think, eye contact with a, an animal and more like making eye contact with a person.
1: So if we think about this, as you said, kind of from the human side, humans are thinking this has this impact, et cetera, I'd love to ask you about something you mentioned at the beginning. To what extent do you think dogs are active agents in these triads?
0: so okay i'm gonna have to say i'm not like school i'm not like a veterinarian i'm not a zoologist or something so some of what i did read that that is not like say the strongest chapter in terms of my the depth of my personal background so i want to give that there could be a veterinarian out there getting mad at me right now but even among like pro-animal people there will still be debates about like do and like one of the big ones is do animals actually experience guilt you know like if if you if you know if they like eat something you're not supposed to eat or knock over a vase and you yell at them. Are they actually guilty, feeling guilty, or are they just reacting to yelling at them? You know, those kind of ideas. But my personal experience, some of what I read in like journal articles is that dogs can do things like, like dogs that are like either in the wild or just sort of um, like playing together, they can form coalitions. One of the things I was surprised to find out is that this? Um, forget her name, though. But uh, she did research on tri- triadic relationships and dogs, and talked about how, like, a lower status dog will help a higher status dog fight a third dog, or a dog that gets insulted, like, will go back and sort of apologize uh, to other dogs, or, like I said, you know, dog, like you, you can almost like my dog, who seems so sweet and innocent, if she interacts with my my ex-girlfriend, Joelle's dog, she sees that that dog is named Charlie. Charlie has a bone. So Lucy wants the bone. So she takes it. You give Charlie another bone. Lucy now sees that bone and wants that bone too. So she takes both bones. And I guess Charlie, even though Charlie is a little bit bigger and probably stronger, she just gives in to Lucy. So I'd say that that those kind of you know, greediness is like a human like as greedy as people. Like, why do people want to make a billion dollars, right? I mean, it's more money they can ever use. So I'd say that anecdotally, it seems like dogs have the same flaws that human beings have, like jealousy or greediness or something like that. They will interpose themselves between two people because they want more attention. They will form coalitions with other dogs and gang up on like a third dog, um, they, again, you can start to debate how much forethought there is, but they, they seem to be able to look so innocent and sweet that you just want to give them more and more treats. Now you could say like, if you want to be, you know, you can use like a sort of a simple reinforcement model and say the dog, you're just reinforcing the dog's behavior. Uh, but then if you're playing with them or talking, or talking to them, you know, they do seem to have these human-like characteristics. So I'd say that there's some evidence that they are conscious beings. You know, they have memories. They can retrieve things from other rooms. Uh, They remember like people that have mistreated them. Uh, They can hide, like, you know, my, my little dog used to be more skittish. She was adopted. So she would like hide when I got her she was actually a little, I had to bribe her with steak to get her to come close to, she would only come close enough to get the steak and then she'd go away again. Um, so I think that, you know, they have feelings, they have emotions, they have suspiciousness, they operate on other, other dogs and other people to get attention. so that to me, that's pretty human-like.
1: No, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, What would you like to take us through in terms of kind of the main dynamics of potential conflicts in this triad formation?
0: Okay, well, I think like some of it I've kind of hinted at. I think that, um, and this kind of goes to something you said way at the beginning, something to the effect of on a small scale and on a big scale. And I think when I wrote the book, I started with like a triad, like the smallest group of people or, you know, dogs and people that's beyond 2 and that would be 3. But then you can so I talked about, you know, like and it goes all the way like there's a passage in the book where I say, you know, you can have a conflict even before I guess even before we get to to more than one person. I can have a conflict within myself over whether or not I want to buy a dog or whether or not I want to buy a big dog or a little dog. And then you and I can have a conflict over should we get like, what if you like big dogs and I like little dogs? So even before you even have the dog, there's a possibility of having a conflict over what kind of dog to get. Should we get a male or a female? Should we have it neutered or not neutered? Should we get a human food or not human food? Should we put it, let it sleep in bed with us or not? You know, so it's just like right there, even before you buy it, you start to have problems. And I'm going to guess at least some people buy dogs impulsively. So then they don't talk about this till after they have the dog um so then and then the conflict may become more manifest like how much does the dog shed um so that's this that was the basic the main focus of the book i guess you could say was two adults with one dog but then i as i expanded on this i started to realize here's another here's another triad a husband and a wife and a child that's a triad right and again Most people, you know, have kids and they love their kids, but the kids can gang up like one parent with the child against the other parent, especially if there's any kind of hint of divorce or conflict among the married couple, say. But then now you add a a dog, a child and two parents. Now you're going to get even more complicated than a triad, but you're going to have the same kind of like a sub triad, like you might have a child, the dog and one parent fighting over whether or not the dog can have ice cream or something. So you have this kind of conflict with people that are adults, people with children, adults with children. I suppose you'd have it with children with children, like two children who own a dog, you know, a family who owns a dog, but then it expands outward. Uh, Do you want to start to think of like me, my dog, and then the neighbor that doesn't like my dog because my dog poops in their lawn, right? Or, um, makes noise or something. But then you can, if you start to replace a person with a group of people, you can have dog owners, dog, non-owners and the government. So the dog, the government, and I know now I'm going to speak here a little bit. Maybe you would know more about this. I think, didn't England have some sort of law that was passed against, um, uh, what's, what's the breed that people are worried about?
1: To be honest, as a non-dog owner, I don't know. <laughs>
0: um, or what's, uh, oh, pit bull. Yeah, there's a lot of animosity about pit bulls. Some people think, you know, they were like almost, like people will say they were bred to fight, right? Or bred to be aggressive. And then people bring them into their house and then they attack. And I, and I talk in the book about sort of um, some truth and some half-truth or whatever, depending on what article you read. About whether or not pit bulls are more aggressive or, than other dogs, like German shepherds, say, right? But I thought there was some law that was either passed or talked about in Britain where they had, um, like, they basically like outlawed pit bulls or outlawed certain breeds of dogs or somehow greatly restricted access to them. But to but to go back to your main point, um, so if you think about. A, a group of people operating in the same way, then you still could talk about a triadic relationship like dog lovers, dog haters, the government, or, although this isn't really so much about dogs, but, um, you know, like animal rights activists and farmers, especially like cattle farmers or something, and then the government. So who gets to tell the government or who gets to tell farmers whether or not they have to have certain procedures to protect the animals or if you talk about um like i guess whatever word you want to use like more merciful forms of butchering animals when you know to be used like in factory farming kind of ways to produce like millions of hamburgers a day or something like that so you can make the whole argument um with replacing people with groups of people uh like for example laws about uh where, whether animals can go into parks or not, or into um, buildings or not, like, you know, like a restaurant or, a, or maybe not a restaurant, but even like inside the mall,
1: say. Well, actually, while we're on that point about law, could I ask you um, to kind of almost expand that in a way? Because those are obviously laws about um, where dogs can go and where humans who have dogs can kind of take them. That, In some ways, it's almost about the rights of owners, I suppose, to kind of what behavior they can and cannot undertake. What about if we think about laws in terms of the rights of dogs or the rights of pets? What do you think your work says about that, sort of legally and morally?
0: Well, I, w- I mean, I guess I would say it doesn't like directly. Like, I'm not a moral philosopher, although I would. A reviewer did encourage me to include these issues, and I did, at least somewhat. Um, I mean, I'd say kind of contradicting what I said before, even people who like dogs, I mean, there's very few rule, like really rules that govern, like how to control animals. I mean, you can, like, you can be completely within your rights and leave a dog, like chained up in your backyard, right? You can put a dog in a little crate for like eight hours a day, and nobody's going to really arrest you, right? And again, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a cop. Um, but I know you can't like do certain kinds of cruelty, but you could probably be a lot more cruel to an animal and get away with it than you could like a human being and get away with it. So I think that dog, like in the United States, at least, dogs do have like rights with regard to like animal cruelty laws, but those are pretty like extreme and difficult to enforce. And I would say probably receive a lot less punishment than if you did something like akin to that, to a human being. Uh, animals can't really advocate for themselves because they can't talk, they can't hire lawyers and things like that. So in a way, which kind of actually ties back to your, your, your question about liminal state, dogs could never really advocate for themselves, right? The best you can do is find a sympathetic owner or a sympathetic person that will pay a lawyer to take care of the dog, you know, in terms of um, trying to argue some animal rights thing. Uh, now, I do know, I again, sort of pulling from the book and pulling from my memory, certain countries, like I think Australia did something to the effect to, to try to recognize animal rights more strongly. But I think it's going to be an uphill battle, partly because going back to this triad idea, because you're going to be fighting like People who, even with the best of intentions, take advantage of animals, like either in terms of using them for drug testing or, uh, you know, like product testing or even medical research or killing them to eat them or to use their their fur and so on and so on, which isn't necessarily dogs, but other animals. So I think that it's a definite problem. Like I said, it's sort of obvious. But I do think especially... I guess in the country that I'm most familiar with the United States, it seems like people are becoming more uh, aware of dogs rights or sympathetic to dogs, which could in a way though, create like a, like a two tier system, like dogs that have human owners that are nice get treated like Kings and Queens. Right. But dogs that live in the dog pound or who live on the street have pretty rough lives, I would say.
1: Hmm. And Kind of thinking about that, the as you said, the societal level, to what extent do you think this work, um, in your book about particular triads, uh, can expand up to the more macro level of people arguing about dogs or having conflicts about dogs, or to what extent is kind of it, are there specific things to the micro level that don't expand?
0: Well, I, okay, one way that I think this would connect, which is a little bit of a long aside. I won't make it too long, though. Um, So there's this term game theory. And when I was in graduate school, that's what I basically studied, cooperation and competition in game theory. And the most famous game is the Prisoner's Dilemma, which talks about how like, you and I are arrested, and the sheriff is trying to get us to rat out each other. If we don't, then we get off relatively easily if I rat you out, I get off really well, but you get a severe sentence, but the same process operates for you. And so what can happen is we rat out each other and end up worse off than if we didn't rat out each other. But the problem is I can't really trust you as much as I wish I could. Or if I do trust you, maybe I have more of an incentive to take advantage of you. So I'd say the triad idea is similar in that it, it's, a, it's seemingly like an unemotional, abstract way of thinking about things. But then when you start to apply it, you can see that it applies to, like, people interacting, like, in their house, interacting with work, interacting with neighbors. You can think of and – and game theory has been applied to, like, nuclear relations between countries, right? Um, so I think that you can make the case that the principles, the abstract principles – would apply. At uh, a more personal level, in terms of what I wrote about, I would say maybe just somebody else who's also recognizing that people have a strong emotional connection to their animals, certain, especially like dogs and cats, and that attempts to interfere with that are going to be met with difficulty. Like to go back to this pit bull argument, People who own pit bull bulls love their pit bulls and say they're not dangerous and they're not, et cetera. So it's going to be very hard to not antagonize those people um, if you try to restrict their ability to own or raise pit bulls.
1: No, that absolutely makes sense. Um, Before I ask you what you're working on next, is there anything further you'd like us to know about this book and the work you're doing here?
0: Well, one thing that's, I, I guess I sort of lost track of it and it's its kind of a weird thing, but it's going to tie into what you're going to ask in a few minutes about what I'm doing next. But um, the one of the reasons I wrote this book about dogs is because I'd written a previous book about polyamory and art using a, a strong like game theory coalition idea that polyamory, like the simplest polyamory Polyamorous situations, three people, and I basically made the argument. I called it the dilemma of coalition instability. Um, the idea that the same thing that you have two people and a dog, you can have three people and they're fighting over, you know, like who's getting more attention from whom. And if you use the game theory uh, coalition formation argument, the problem with polyamory, and I'm not saying I'm against polyamory. I'm just saying that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm for nuclear peace, but I also recognize that game theory can give us insights into the difficulty of having nuclear weapons and not using them either on purpose or by accident. So you can understand these dynamics, even though they're dangerous dynamics, um, and want them to work in a certain way, even though it may be hard for them to work that way. So I'd say that polyamory is the same way, that it's hard to get it to work because of the conflict between what's good for me, what's good for two of us versus what's good for three of us. And so I applied that same kind of logic to the dogs. Um, and then I wrote another book about polyamory where people t- talking about whether or not people want to open their relationship but talked about it as a seemingly simple question that has a lot of complex impl- implications for the nature of our dyadic relationship but then also the nature of who are we gonna look for and we may have conflict over who we wanna add as the third or the fourth or something. So I'd say that the ideas, so a way to think about the dog book is that it started with like this very abstract question of how do we deal with three things at once which I know this is a physics thing, the three-body problem, which is apparently a lot more difficult to figure out how three bodies move around each other in space than you would think. So I could say the three-body problem applied to dogs in one case or people's love lives in the other case.
1: So then what are you working on next?
0: So, well, one thing, I've got a couple of things. So I guess, I, I guess now that I'm saying this out loud, I'm kind of bouncing to a lot of places, but... Um, I guess at this point, I'm, I'm older. So I guess I've done, I'm kind of looking for projects that may not necessarily have like wide applicability, or generate um, grant money or something like that, but that I find interesting, either because I do or because friends do. So one project that I'm working on is um, a book about monogamy and this term that I've discovered does not really exist in the literature, but Again, no surprise, it can be related to game theory, which I call defensive monogamy. And the idea here, and so it kind of relates to polyamory, it kind of relates to marriage monogamy. I teach a class in human sexuality, so I talk about it there too, that I distinguish between defensive monogamy and affirmative monogamy. And for me, affirmative monogamy is you're monogamous because you want to be. And for me, defensive monogamy is a strategy where you are monogamous because you don't want your partner to not be monogamous. So, so basically trying to think about what this term defensive monogamy means and its implications um, in terms of how people negotiate, the again, using the symbolic interactionist idea, the meaning of monogamy, why do we enter into monogamous arrangements, but then at least, well, actually other countries as well, generally the numbers are like 25% of men, 15 to 20% of women will engage in infidelity. In the United States, like approximately half of marriages end in divorce. So you make this promise that you're not really that good at keeping because, you know, the divorce statistics, the infidelity statistics. Um, so so what I'm contrasting, then is monogamy as a strategy that you agree to in order to keep somebody else from violating it versus monogamy as a strategy that you actually want to have. And my argument, so the book would basically be focused on trying to define what defensive monogamy is, which then raises problems of how do you even define what monogamy is? Like what are the boundary conditions for that? Um, So that's one project then another project, which again, seems like totally different. And I have to give credit to two of my friends and collaborators over the years, Scott Allison and Al, uh, Al, Al Gothels were editing an encyclopedia um, on, her- on basically on the concept of heroism. Al and Scott were de- tried to develop these ideas like maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There's this famous uh, sort of like philosophy, English professor type person named Joseph Campbell who talked wrote a book called Like The Hero with a Thousand Faces? And basically said that all, all myths and legends and literature is the same basic story of somebody who confronts a challenge, changes as a result of confronting it, and then achieves like some new level of enlightenment that he gives he, to other people. So if you want to go like as high in terms of like Jesus Christ. Or Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. The argument is that both of them follow the sort of the hero's journey model. So Scott and Al became involved in the psychology of heroism, or the idea that anybody could be a hero, like under the right circumstances, what makes somebody act heroically. So this book, which is going to be like probably over a million words, this encyclopedia of heroism studies basically looks at. The psychology of heroism heroism and movies if you start to think about it it expands to like a very big topic like um you know heroes and literature so it ties into literature heroes and literature it ties into therapy like using the idea of a journey for heroism to um grow as a person or overcome your own personal like uh problems in your life um and yeah, you know, so anyway, that's that's so that's using up some of my time. This book about monogamy is using up some of my time. I'd say right now.
1: Well, thank you for giving us those previews. And while you work on both of those projects, of course, listeners can't read the book we've been discussing, titled "How Our Love of Dogs Creates Social Conflict," uh, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2022. Jim, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.